Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Books Podcast, where we're feeling the burn after Anna Burns carried off the 2018 Man Booker Prize with Milkman. Um, Your Royal Highness, uh, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, friends of literature in the many dialects of this language we all love, our celebration of the Man Booker Prize should begin with the writers who have brought us together, the more than 170 novelists we judges read and discussed. Fiction in English, we can report, is in splendid shape, at least in its more ambitious tiers. The winnowing has been hard, there was so little chaff. Because the finalists were so marvelous, picking just one of them was enormously challenging, but in the end, out of the pleasures and rigors of our year-long conversation has come this year's winner. I can tell you now what even I did not know this very morning and announce that the 2018 Man Booker Prize for Fiction goes to Anna Burns for Milkman. We'll be hearing from the poets Kate Tempest and Don Patterson later, but with me in the studio are Claire Armitstead and Charlotte Higgins to discuss a Booker upset. So what was it like in the room when the announcement came, Claire? Well, I would use the word electric were it not a cliché. And this is, the sort of, <laughs> this is the sort of book that makes you examine your clichés and also all your previous opinions in my case, because I have to say I've been reading, frantically reading all six of the books, and this was the one that I least thought was going to win. And... It having done so, I'm now examining my prejudices. And I think that it is a book that rewards both rereading and also hearing aloud. Mm, yeah, because it's about the voice, is it? It's, a, it's got this amazing voice, yes. A young woman, a young Irish woman. It's very, very intrinsic. And when I say you can't use cliché when you're talking about Anna Burns, is um, she dismantles every single cliché you possibly could think of, doesn't she? Societal and psychological, political. It, maybe we should say, what, what, what's the setting for people who haven't read it yet? The setting is an unnamed Northern Irish town in the midst of the Troubles in the 1970s. And I must say, I have to say that I absolutely love this book. I haven't read the entire shortlist, so I, have, I, I, I can't say whether I think it was absolutely the best, the best of the bunch, but I just think it's wonderful, and it's absolutely on the nail in terms of being the book for now, in my view. So, yeah, the setting is this it's, it's a sort of awfully claustrophobic sense of things going very badly wrong, a violent, oppressive environment. The main character is a young woman, 18-year-old, and as Claire says, she has this, this extremely strong internal voice. One of the first things we see her doing is walking along the street reading, and she's reading, of all things, Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. You think, why is she reading? It's so interesting, you know, when a, when a, a character in a book is reading a book, it really... It's a really, declaration of intent, <laughs> isn't it? You really want to, well, why is she reading Ivanhoe? And I, I thought about this, and my one of the things I think is it's possibly because... This setting of 1970s Ireland, in one way, is almost as distant, right, to us as a kind of English medieval romance would have been to this young girl reading in 1970s Ireland. And it, it suggests a kind of mythic 
quality which I think comes through the book partly none of the characters have names so they're all referred to by like middle sister that's the name of the protagonist or um, milkman that's the name nearly of boyfriend or nearly boyfriend <laughs> or nearly ex-boy ex-nearly boyfriend all that kind of thing and this nickname of this incredibly dominating and sinister character milkman who you know imposes himself in various ways on the main character but the, okay, so the two reasons I thought it's just unbelievably timely are, first of all, actually because of the Irish Troubles setting. I mean, if our cabinet could be made to read one book right now that might tell them about, you know, the ghastly things that could be unleashed <laughs> if um, a Brexit agreement isn't made pretty quickly about the Irish border, you know, it's this book. This, this, this Do is not go back here. Do, exactly so. <laughs> And the second thing is this very acute, perceptive, penetrating look at gender relations, which so it's absolutely on the nail of the Me Too era. This this woman who is threatened by this kind of you know, overwhelming character of the milkman. There's been a lot of talk in the news coverage about it being a challenging read. What do you make of that, Claire? Well, I think it is because you, you have to absolutely buy into the voice. You have to go with the voice and you have to stay with the voice. And I think that is quite challenging. I think we're quite fidgety readers now. And compared with the other novels on the shortlist, I think it's the one that you have to work to get into. But I think Charlotte's absolutely right. It absolutely does reward it. You mentioned Ivanhoe, but she also, uh, this protagonist mentions Tristram Shandy and Dostoevsky. So, so she's playing, conjuring up a sort of literature, which is a literature, a playful literature, but also literature which disturbs reality. And the whole act of reading becomes the most subversive thing you can do. There's this lovely line where somebody says to her, it's disturbing, it's deviant, it's optical illusional, not public spirited, not self-preservation, calls attention to itself. And why? with enemies at the door, with the community under siege, with us having to pull together, would anyone want to call attention to themselves here? To which the protagonist answers, hold on a minute, are you saying it's okay for him to go around with Semtex, but not okay for me to read Jane Eyre in public? Right, so yeah, there's the sense of society that's completely closed into its own norms and violence has become absolutely the norm. And she's stepping outside of that with but her But there's no, there's no kneecapping all those cliches of, of Northern Irish life, is well, there? Well, it's, it's the odd explosion. It's sort of in the background. It's absolutely in the background. She, you know, obviously we know that that's where she lives. But. No, I suppose what I mean, it's almost like a dystopian novel in that it, it's, it's a society locked into its own norms and ways of speaking and doing things. And, and that's beautifully described, like the way you can tell who's from whose side by the way they talk about bread or, you know, the kind of incredible particularity of language that demarcates people's political views or where they stand on certain things and it's absolutely closed down in particular and yeah the sort of oppressive little world she hasn't out of because she yeah she has the sort of the act of reading to help her I personally I mean maybe this is you know people are incredibly personal about reading you know headline I found the voice immediately very attractive um I found it a much easier read, as it were, than recent winners like Paul Beatty, which I loved, but I didn't find it easy. Eleanor Catton, Ditto, I really enjoyed it, but I, I certainly had to kind of, you know, plug myself in very consciously. This, I felt, just whipped along for me. So, you know, it's a very personal thing. People have talked about, you know, it doesn't go in for paragraphs very much and uh, it doesn't go in for much punctuation and the characters don't have names. I think as long as you allow yourself to be swept away by, by the voice it is like someone speaking in your head 
you're well away. I would give this to people. I would recommend it to people. It's, it's that kind of book for me. It's interesting that um, it wasn't, I think it didn't <clears throat> completely come alive for me, if I'm honest, until I heard it being read out loud. Mm. And that's something that I noticed mm. with um, Colm Toy Bean's novels as well, that, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Colm Toy Bean. But I don't think I really understood the way that language and syntax and voice are the intelligence of the novel until I heard it in audiobook. And I think that is true of, of this novel. And again, something that you say felt different the second time around for you, Claire. Yeah, once you've got that, then you go back into it and it's just, you know, every page buzzes, basically. In, in some sense, is that the kind of book that Booker Judges should be rewarding? The one that merits rereading, that merits a, a getting into in a kind of deep way? Yeah, I just think we have to get away from this should. I mean, I think that, actually, I think they put together a very interesting and good shortlist. Um, you know, I really loved Richard Powers, The Overstory. I know a lot of people said it was overwritten, but I just absolutely loved the way, it, the structure of it, the, the way it dealt with sort of nature, the the idea that trees become a different form of love. I love Robin Robertson's The Long Take, which actually is more radical formally because it is basically a poem than this. Um, so I think it was a really good list. And this is a good novel. And I, I mean, I think that it probably won't sell in huge numbers. I think it's already done reasonably well. It's actually, certainly done compared, very well in, in Ireland. Yeah, it's done well in Ireland. I agree with your I agree with your contention about should. I mean, Booker judges just do what Booker judges do, right? And I don't think anyone can really predict what can what happens. I mean, these are it's a group of individuals that have they'll have a particular dynamic on a particular day, and all sorts of peculiar things can happen in those rooms. You know, Julian Barnes was totally right when he called it posh bingo. I am glad that she's won from one very particular point of view. And I, we know that um, our colleague Lisa Allardyce is interviewing her this morning. And I'm really looking forward to reading that article. Um, not least because in the acknowledgements to Milkman, Anna Burns thanks her local food bank. You think, well, and it was clear that she hasn't got very much money. And I was thinking, God, was she a client of that food bank? Yeah, when she, she talked about, at the press conference, she talked about having gone to the Royal Literary Fund. I think that she has lived in, you know, the old, it's the old Garrett syndrome, basically. And she, she talked about waiting for the voices to come along. I mean, there's something very sort of pure about it. And I mean, how extraordinary that she should go on something like 16 years, I think it was, after she last came to any notice and win the Booker Prize. And oh, that was a wonderful thing, a wonderful story for her, isn't it? I mean, don't take, you know, don't try this at home, kids, because this is like lightning striking, but good for her. It's nice to think she'll be able to pay off some debts and not maybe go to the food bank. And, you know, and, and I have to say, for all that there's no should about it, the Booker people are going to be very happy that it's not a, an American male <laughs> with all the, the stuff that's been going on about America it could quite possibly have gone to an American male it was a very strong they were all quite strong books and it's a, the numbers are kind of moving in, in the right direction I mean the, historically there's uh, I think 34 winners of whom 17 have been women and in the last 10 years there have been six men and four women two of which Hilary Mantel so another woman is is a move in the right direction perhaps I think it's more I think for the Booker Prize itself and those who run it I think probably I guess less about gender and more about this whole American question about whether it was right to change also the about eligibility. Form. About about formal seriousness, and this is a this is a formally very serious book, isn't it? Yeah, but I think the stuff they're talking about at their board meetings is more like the eligibility rules, you know. Oh yeah, and that and that yeah. and it has been you know staggeringly unpopular among British publishers to have extended the remit out to American novels and British authors too because it just feels like British authors 
you know, just don't, don't really have a great chance anymore. I mean, this is the first Northern Irish winner, so that well, in well, the is most kind of, of fantastic. The, yeah, but the, I mean, the, the the irony of that is that this is the first Northern Irish novel, and for most of the life of the book, Northern Irish novels have been eligible. Mm. You know, and actually, there have been there is a fiction of Northern Ireland, and I think there is coming up. I think that we're going to see a lot. There is a great flowering of Irish novels on both sides of the borders and we're going to see an awful lot coming up in the new year. Yeah, the challenge for me for the Booker Prize for next year is to make space for voices around the world which I think have lost out to um, to American and British writers and see what they come up with. Indeed yeah we'll have to see what comes next but um, yeah I'm, and this is a book I'd happily give people for Christmas and all that you know that would be happy news for booksellers no doubt. <laughs> I'm Lee Lendening and in this month's We Need to Talk About podcast our panel respond to Guardian supporter questions on extinction. How can conservation be balanced with the hunger for development? With finite conservation resources how can we decide which species to save and who should decide this? And what can we do to support biodiversity in our local area? This is a massive economic assault by one species on the lives of all the other 8 to 10 million. We look into pesticides and tourism, on the efforts to save the Sumatran orangutan, Dorset hedgehogs, Belizean national parks and much more. That's We Need to Talk About Extinction. To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Don't you sometimes wish you could be a fly on the wall when a writer sits with her editor and chats about the process behind the writing? Well, today you can, because that's what we have here when Kate Tempest dropped in with her poetry editor, the esteemed and brilliant poet in his own right, Don Patterson, to talk about her new collection of love poems, Running Upon the Wires. As they kicked back with a cup of tea, Don began by asking Kate how she's feeling about her book, Now It's Out. Yeah, it feels, um, I feel really good about it. I feel really glad that it's out. I feel quite... I feel kind of strangely sure that I, I did what I could with it and that now it's out. You say that like you do always feel that way. It's no, I never feel that way. <laughs> it's, it's a very new thing. And I think like we, you know, we talked about it so much as, as it was coming together. Like the fact that it was going to be so tightly focused and in this vein that it is. It's a book of like love poems, I should say. It's, it charts heartbreak to new love with all the mess in between. And it it doesn't ever pan out, really. And I I feel like because we because I knew that's what it was going to be, I feel quite happy that it's. It's no that, surprise. That it's that. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah. that sometimes it's that thing, you know, when you get the book. It's like because I mean I don't know if you've had that before, but uh, sometimes you get the book through the post, and there's always that anticipation, and it's like it can't be the worst case of post Christmas letdown ever, you know. It's just like you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> or you open it on a typo and somebody tries to tell you that's good luck you know yeah. it's like you know, it's, it's already sort of tainted so it's like it's great that you yeah. that you feel good about it i've had a few of those when you yeah when you you don't feel completely sure that you did everything you wanted to do with it before it went off to be printed yeah. but with this i feel like i feel a bit more chilled about it like not not to be at all um you know, blase about it. Still, when I saw it, when I when I held the book in my hand for the first time, it was like, you know, like quite quite an amazing moment because you that that thing when you've when you've seen a poem go from handwritten thing to you know an edited thing suddenly, then it's typed up and then it's sent off and then it's changed and then it's set into the manuscript and then suddenly it's on a page in yeah. an actual book. Like, I did wonder if there'd be a difference for you this time though, because you know, the, because the voice itself throughout the book is is more interior than people would normally associate with you. You know what I mean? It's less sort of performative and yeah. in that way, you know. So and so there's a therefore maybe a kind of bigger threshold between it becoming public as it were, you know, and I and I, and I wondered if you know, if you'd experience some glitch, you know, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> but no, <laughs> I feel really chilled about it. Yeah. But I think that because with other work, um, once it's a book, that's not the be all and end all of it. Like it still has to be a tour, or it has to be a performance yeah. of some sort. It has to be, it has to be. Um, there needs something else needs to happen for the thing to come alive. Whether that's a performance on my part or on the part of the reader, it has to be kind of this quite intense engagement with it. But with this, I feel like I wrote these poems to live like this. N now they live like this. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Even talking about it so much makes you think I probably do feel more nervous than I'm letting on. Like, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because it's about, because you're, the situation you're in now is much closer to the one I tend to find myself in, you know, yeah. which, which is like, you know, where, where, where the performance doesn't have that relationship to the book, you know. You know, the, but in my case, the performance is a way of killing the book stone dead. You know, it's it's like That's it's not a, true. I've kind of grudge it. Oh, you, but it's <laughs> but you know, it's like a grudging sales pitch for the book sort of thing. You know, but I mean, it's just because the book, as you say, is a thing. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of odd feeling because it's quite ex it's quite an, ex an external thing to you. You know, it's like an object. It's like. But do you, you know? have moments when you're composing or conceiving poems or however you like to think of how it's happening when you? Do you have any hunger for the poem to be performed outside of the page in the book? Sometimes I want people to hear it, you know. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, but that's usually a, a bad instinct. It's usually because I'm chuffed with myself, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm proud of some line that I've just written, which usually means it's terrible, <laughs> you know. And I, and I want to tell the world, you know, to just show them how clever I am. And that's usually, it's not always a good sign if that's what I feel, weirdly, but it's taken a long time to realise that. But I do... Um, I don't know if you do this, but I do test all the lines out against the air just to see if they're working. I'm not, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't know if it was just in my head. I need to speak them aloud, you know, to, to see if they have any musical integrity, I suppose. Yeah. Did you find yourself doing that? Well, you would do as a matter of course anyway, being yeah. a performer as well. Yeah, but also not even with my own poems, like whenever I'm reading other people's poems. Really? I read them out loud. I think, I think, I just think you should. I think as a rule... You should read poetry aloud because your ear will pick up on things that you your eye will skip over. And I I reckon, yeah, that the poets I'm pretty sure that all poets will will be listening to the words. They'll say them out loud at least, you know, once or twice, just to get a sense of, as you say, the kind of the the musical integrity of it, the sonics of it. There's so much more that you discover when you about a poem or even when you're reading like uh, anything. 
some a line jumps out to you and you you end up just saying it out loud anyway you know if if you re- if you really if a line really hits you you end up speaking it but yeah yeah i find out like lines of dialogue in a film are the same way if it struck me as particularly brilliant you know i just like i play it again or, yeah. or i find myself mouthing it and it's the same with the poem and i think it's because as soon as you sort of um you get to perform it you know it has that that whole kind of sort of international dimension to it that carries all the intention and the feeling and the, and the real kind of uh, uh, meaning behind it not just the semantics of it you know you get a chance to kind of inhabit it as a piece of kind of loving human speech in a way that's quite you know. so Don Patterson you teach poetry and you <laughs> and you edit poetry and, and you work with poets what what is there something that you wish that your students and your poets knew <laughs> already <laughs> Is there something that you just wish that, you know, is there, is there something that you wish your students knew already? I wish they, I wish they knew it wasn't a career, uh, you know, and I don't, <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm, it's only semi-facetious, you know, but I don't think it is. It's, it's a kind mm. of weird job. I've got, I like yourself, I've got other, I've got friends who work in other art forms and they mm. do a nine to five or some version of that, you know, mm. like, um, there's a lot of friends of mine, starts work at eight o'clock in the morning, knocks off at six at night every day, you know, mm. novelists take off their 2,000 words, whatever, you know. But the, the poetry is nothing like that. It's not something that you can do, I find anyway, on a, on a daily basis. I mean, you can do other stuff related to it, but to write poetry every day just seems like a one-way route to the asylum. I, I, I can't imagine why you would... Uh, you would want to so it's not really like other kinds of 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 artistic practice i think i think that's something i wish they knew and i'm slightly worried i suppose uh, you know that they've been encouraged to think otherwise recently i don't know quite how this has come about i mean i tend to blame everyone on social media like the old get i am you know i barely know what it is but you know all social media but um but for some reason they've been encouraged to think that it's you know a career um and is that is that a new that seems like a new thing yeah. in them. Yeah, yeah. And My current position is that it used to say it was a vacation, but I think it's a disease. <laughs> <laughs> what do you yeah. think? I don't know. I'd, I'm kind of interested in what you're saying about this thing about it not being something that you can do every day. And if, if you were to do that, it's a one-way ticket to the asylum. That's a very... It's, for me, it's quite reassuring to hear that from you. It's like... Because you get... Because as as a working writer, you know, you you have your deadlines and you have your things that you have to do. And as you say, you've got these other things that you'll be working on that keep the poetry in quite a sacred space. Ideally, you know, yeah, yeah. You go and do the, yeah, the the kind of longer pieces. For me, it's music or something. Music is very instinctive and it's like a real refresher. It zeroes everything. I can go at any point, at any time of the day or night. I can go and make music. Mm. That's fine. And like writing fiction, it's harder. And it and it involves you in a different way. You can't really fit that in in between other things. But to hear you say that, even for you, poetry happens kind of what on its own terms. When when is it time for you to write then? If it's not if it's not a daily thing. I used to sort of try and figure it out so I could I could do that thing again, you know, and, and light the incense and shake the bells and and recreate the circumstances <laughs> of the last decent poem. And I hope, it, but it's never like that. I mean, I've oh. just gone four years without writing a line. And I just started like two or three months ago, and I don't know why, you know, just like mm-hmm. apart from the usual, you know, sort of, you know, recent traumatic experiences, you know, but those come up regularly and sometimes they're unproductive, you know. I mean, life's always going to happen to you, so there's always stuff to write about, but I don't know what the what the pattern of it is. I don't know why you stop and start. What kind of relationship do you have with your editor? It's good, um, you know, but I don't get much feedback. You're in a class of your own. I think it's because he, he, he makes a mistake in uh, thinking that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, but you know, do you, so at, at that stage, at your stage in in this, who do you count among your peers? Do you feel like you have a network of contemporaries that you can like speak with or? I've got a lot of friends, you know, yeah. who do the same thing. But but usually when we get together, we speak about money or something, you know. Yeah. It's, just like <laughs> it's, it's, real life. it's um, it, but it's kind of funny. I think it, it happens. It's the case that, that, and it's often the case that you feel kind of increasingly sort of isolated in your art. I think as you get older, mm. inevitably, and I think partly because people do assume that you know what you're doing, whereas you don't really if you're doing it right. You're always going back to kind of scorched earth. You're always coming back to the blank page. You're always kind of trying to forget how you do it so you won't do it the same way twice you know and and it's then that you do kind of need to I'm, I'm being facetious I do have the support of some good friends working mm. you know sort of in poetry it, it's true but you know maybe you know, I, I, I don't talk to them about it as much as I, I should I think it's healthy for poets to talk to other poets I think they always have do you have a, a circle that you share work around well I feel like I've got it's really reassuring by the way to hear you say that if you're doing it right you never know what you're doing you know that it doesn't get in some ways it's reassuring, in other ways it's terrifying to think yeah. that it doesn't get any more, yeah. doesn't get any easier. But yeah, I feel like within my creative universe, I feel extremely lucky to have lots of yeah peers, contemporaries. Also, when you're working on things, and I'm working on projects, if you're working on an album, you're working with musicians or you're working with a producer. If you're working on a play, you're working with actors and you know a director. It's all really collaborative. With poetry, yeah, it's um, for me it was always very communal because it happened mm. in public spaces and it happened out loud, like in, in uh, poetry events, spoken word events. But then also like, I have this the benefit of running my ideas past you and having a conversation about, about the work as it begins to take shape, which I feel like is, is the most... It's, inc- it's an incredible thing to, to have somebody give your work this attention like I feel very lucky and I also have that kind of relationship with other people that I work with you know where you you kind of trust each other enough to go into a conversation about work before it's ready to be seen like I remember when I sent you the first poems from what became Running yeah. Upon the Wires and I was really umming and ahhing about it like oh am I ready to let somebody see what and I just thought well this this is what I'm working on like at some stage, I'm gonna have to find out whether there's any legs in this. And then I just remember like pressing send and being like, "Oh God, <laughs> I've sent done these poems about my heartbreak." Like, but then just having the having a conversation about the poetics of the poems, like whether whether they have you know any weight to them or what about them is working and what isn't. Suddenly, it's like this amorphous, terrifying world of unmade work you know it could it could be anything it's funny beginning. that you find yourself have these these rather kind of cold almost some, i mean sometimes in my case like psychotically cold conversations <laughs> you know, editorial conversations yeah. uh, you know sort of uh, you know about you know line breaks metaphors and what have you you know when the subject matter itself is often so intense and traumatic and you know sort of and sometimes disturbing with an author you know it's just like but yeah you're both <laughs> in that position they're going you know, it's just yeah. If you swap these two words around, you know, and you, and you and you cut out the murder in the third stanza, and I think it'll work. I think that will, you know, put the murder there. That works better. It's. It, I feel like it's the only way you could do it because, like, at that stage, what you're both looking at, then you're looking at the craft of it. So you, you go. You're not. It's not therapy. You know, you're not talking to your 
to someone who's going to read the poem and suddenly give you a solution about the themes within the poem but you're you're talking to someone who can help you improve your craft like yeah. and, and to think and to think about things in a different way so that you can take a step back and try and understand what it is that you're trying to put together in a in a broader sense like as poems as poems that do they belong together in a collection how do they sit on the page all this stuff this is stuff that i never thought about till i started having conversations with you about poetry yeah it's all that thing about how it communicates and what it is exactly that you want it to communicate and what you think it says and what it actually says you know it's just like i find that a really interesting conversation you know i've got a question for you uh, <laughs> so, uh how when did you um at what stage in within your life with poetry do you feel like you understood poetry there's actually, I mean, the, the 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 cool and diplomatic and and you know, I am not an arsehole answer would be, oh, I still don't understand poetry, um, but it was, that wouldn't be true. <laughs> I think there was a there was a day, there will have been a day, when I was like forty two or something like that. It was a horrible day, I, I when because I'd been thinking about nothing else for the last twenty years, pretty solidly, and I have an interest in this technical side of it and how it communicates, you know, how metaphor works, all that sort of stuff. I picked up a book of poems and I couldn't enjoy it anymore because it was like the Matrix. All I could see was mm. streaming digits, you know, and I could see and I could and I could see what was wrong with it and I could see how that metaphor worked and I could see how he'd fix that line because the meter was a bit off and what have you, you know, and I could see how as a gestalt this bit wasn't working and what have you, um, but I couldn't really enjoy it anymore, you know, um, and I think there's a there's a danger with too close an acquaintance with your own craft that sometimes it's difficult to be a pointer. Huh. You know, and I find it really tough to enjoy poetry. I think because of my professionalized kind of engagement with it, and that was a that wasn't a great day. And I had to decide then how uh, I was going to keep enjoying it. You know, and that meant going back to the, you know those those handful of things that I still loved. You know, and just and and making a point of rereading these. You know, sort of religiously. You know, every year. You know, just to to kind of root myself in it again. What were you reading? What were the things? So really things like reading out four quartets in the bath once every three <laughs> months. I think is a, for me is a good thing to do. If I need to remind myself how poetry goes, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll read that, or I'll read Heaney, or I'll read Bishop, you know, in a small resonant room in my home. <laughs> 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 what about you? Are you still loving it? I'm not suggesting it'll ever change, you know, but it's just I think it's a it's an interesting. I feel like I ha I don't understand it. Do you know, I'm not at a point with it where I feel like there's so much to learn. I genuinely feel like every time I hear something or I read something, I don't I don't understand why it's having the effect on me that it's having, or like I I can't work out in my own work why that's happened or yeah. what. There's so many questions around so much of it that but there, I do wonder so whether there's any real connection between understanding and, and actual uh, and writing the stuff you know I don't I don't feel any more able to write it because I understand it better mm. it's kind of really strange and so I can that's, understand it's a more like it's 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 a different hat that understands it it's not it's not it's not done the poet that understands it's done the the academic or the teacher or the uh, maybe you know yeah. I mean I, you know hopefully the poet's been the beneficiary but on my darker days I do wonder yeah. if it would have been better just keeping the whole thing kind of intuitive you know I mean I think the idea is that you train your intuition to make better decisions you know and you can do that quite consciously the same way you do by learning an instrument but just maybe yeah. you can take it too far you know 
I mean, I think keeping that innocent, childlike, engaged, creative part of you uh, alive as a poet is just crucial if you're going to keep keep writing and writing well. Hmm. Hope so. So, do you think there are any alternatives in terms of the well of inspiration to finding trouble for a poet? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the way that you experience existence is very particular for a poet like it's I've talked about this before I feel like it's about having your your senses tuned in to a particular frequency I feel like this with with uh, people that are, are musicians as well I suppose it's a slightly different frequency or, or people that I know who are creatively driven it's about how you're affected by experience and also about how you push yourself to experience experience in the most full way possible because there's this sensitivity about you which is engaging with life at a particular frequency it's the only way I can really describe it and it's so vague but I feel like when when you least expect it to a poem happens out of all the mess and all the confusion and all the beauty and basically what you're dealing with is 80% of the time difficult overwrought feeling and confusing understandings of your place in the world or what's happening around you and 20% of the time it turns into poetry which is wonderful when you, you seek to give it out to people to try and make sense of things because not everybody has their senses open at that frequency and a lot of people can't feel they can't connect with their own feelings in that way they can't it's not safe for them to do that they don't have time in their lives they're just not that they're not that way and so for those of us that are I feel like it's a kind of obligation to go fully into that and try and create something out of it do you think that's a dangerous to frequency to tune into though do you think uh, uh, you know because you talk about sort of you know the 20 percent of the the time and the chaos and the mess you know of actually getting a, a some poetry out of it but but it it does pose a question you know to what extent one seeks chaos and mess in yeah. order to increase your yeah. statistical chances again a poem it's like that thing well <laughs> you know it's, life, it's it? you know <laughs> i can't who was it talked about sort of it's like getting you know just like it's like getting struck by lightning but you can increase your chances by standing outside in a thunderstorm you know yeah um so i, I am interested in the connection about whether whether even unconsciously poets because they're good on that frequency do tend to tune in very deliberately to that frequency in a way that isn't maybe also always that constitutionally helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's damning, isn't it, to think so about it? So this t- heavy yeah. turn, there's supposed to be a cheery conversation. I mean, that was the point of a cheery <laughs> conversation. No, I, f- I think, like, if you look, if you think about, yeah, the kind of havoc that this vocation, like, like wreaks on your life, it's definitely not the kind of thing that you that you put down at the end of the day and come home to your loved ones like able to be a normal human being it's like it's with you all the time and that sometimes means that you're you're not with yourself because you're with this thing you're, you're, you're with the poetry or you're you're bit you're just you're, you're you're elsewhere you're thinking about things or you're feeling something you're processing something you're writing you know it can take you into you know it can be extremely selfish this this job but I think any creative job when I speak to people because I, I have this kind of belief that creativity is extremely important for mental health and that it's very important for people to allow themselves to express themselves in that way and that actually the kind of culture of the genius is what's... and the culture of the expert and this thing that we have here in the West about 
poetry and music being something that belongs to a kind of genius group but actually I believe quite strongly that it should be part of everyday life and that it doesn't matter if you can't play Mozart on the piano it's really healthy just to have, have sure. to make some sound anyway so I've got this this is part of my kind of but there is a qualitative difference between that and as you say responsibility to, to talent you know? Yeah, hundred percent. And as you say, right, it does yeah. take you away. I mean, I always think that's maybe why a lot of poets I know are really into cop shows, you know, because they can identify with that thing where the phone goes off in the middle of the night, and it's like I got to take this. You know, <laughs> we'll get back to that. You know, but I've, work needs me. You know, but when but when I talk to people, and I've been talking to people about that, about like just kind of giving yourself permission to to write a poem, like even if it's not going to be a poem for anyone else to hear, giving mm-hmm. yourself permission to sit with your feelings and describe them in some way. A lot of people that they have explained to me that they feel it's extremely selfish and that they don't want to, especially if they're, if they're mothers, they've got kids or families or, or, you know, fathers. And I think that there is something hard to balance because what you have this, like, this idea that you're communicating with your higher self, which kind of allows you to see it in a different light, that it's not selfishness. You're doing this for this kind of bigger purpose, you know. Mm. But really is, really, is it for that? Like, when I think about it, like... This thing, yeah, this thing about being kind of waiting for the phone to ring or whatever, and I've I've got to take this, you know. There is definitely a question that I have to ask myself about at what point are you serving the work, your community, creativity in general, the muse? At what point are you just serving yourself? Like, it's a hard thing. Like, I never used to. I don't think think it's either or. I think it's often both, you know. And I think it's sometimes that weird position where the ego is useful, and as much as it'll drive you to the gig, and then, but when you, when you, you know, when you're there, you got to do it. You got to have the wherewithal to actually do the gig. But it does, it does serve some purpose. So I think, I think it can be both. Um, Although I do make a sort of, you know, I think there is a difference between, you know, sort of that therapeutic use of the creative Mm. and stuff like that, and 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 the other stuff. I think. I don't know the work. Yeah, we working, yeah. initially, well, we were looking at a way to to structure it, and uh, remember, we were t- I was trying to find like an organising principle for it. And initially, like I thought of, I think I, I, tr- I tried a few different things, and it just wasn't working. It wasn't right. Seasons or something to show that it was moving yeah, through I a year. Remember that? Remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And it was just oh, wasn't yeah, right. It working. felt like a bit heavy-handed, a bit hammy, like. And then also I found out recently about Stag's Leap, which I hadn't read before, which is structured that way. But then when um, when I when it when when it hit me, <laughs> when the inspiration hit me, uh, that obviously it had to be it had to begin at the end. I mean, it's so simple, isn't it? It's just such a simple thing to to open. The conceit is so simple, but it's so satisfying to open the book and the first thing you see is the end. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of what you know when you're going into a relationship that's what you know is about to happen you go into the relationship you open the book the first thing you see is the end you know it's going to happen it makes you realise how thrall you are in these old ways of seeing things you yeah. know these, these standard conceits that would fit everything into it and it yeah. takes a lot to break them you know? and you persist anyway regardless you kind of you still go for it even yeah, though you it's know, all fit. It's doomed <laughs> <laughs> anyway this is a poem from the section of the book which is called the beginning but it comes at the end and it's called I don't want to go backwards with her anymore I want to go forwards with you I feel you going quiet in my company I know you're thinking of her or thinking of me thinking of her 
There's a decoration from our wedding cake still hanging from the rear-view mirror of my car. Her letters are in my bedside drawer. I take the decoration down and throw it out. I put her letters in a box. My sentences begin, Trust me, baby. I've got it all worked out. At which point I see your eyes and everything dies in my mouth. I'm learning to recognise each pitch in the scale of your silence. How do you feel about intimacy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a theoretical way. I th- well, I think that it's funny because people, when I've spoken to people about this book in like interviews or whatever, you know, the, the angle seems to be, oh, this is an unusual, this is unusual for you, this is a new direction. Yeah. But actually... In all, like in Hold Your Own, there were there were very intimate poems. Yeah. There were poems that addressed lovers and sexuality, and in Everything Speaks in Its Own Way, which was a self-published collection. Also, there was loads of very small love poems and poems about intimacy, but they were just kind of tempered against these these kind of bigger, more outward-reaching poems. That I mean, they're still pretty intimate. Some of them, they're still they're still dealing with kind of small internal mm. moments. Let Them Eat Chaos was all... But the concentration then is, is very different, isn't it? And yeah, it's 100%. Just like, and it yeah. seems to have been sort of amplified by the way that it's structured. Because it's you, because you it remember has a narrative kind of arc to it. When, when I sent you a load of poems, and, I, and some, there's some there were like intimate love poems, and then there was a few kind of political poems in there as well. And you said, take these out and let's keep it... Let's keep them to the love poems. Do you remember that? Yeah, I felt that you were protecting yourself. Or something, you know what I mean? It yeah. was just like it was like it was that there, were, there was nothing wrong with them, but it felt like a sort of carapace, you know. Yeah, I, I I thought that was when you came back, saying like I think you know like it would be it would be more interesting I think if we were able to just like maintain the focus and it's what I wanted to do it's what I wanted to do but I didn't feel brave enough until I suppose until we discussed that and I thought okay cool like I can. I kind of gave myself permission to go through with something that I wanted to do, but yeah, yeah. it was. I think that's for me why the edit for for me as well is just like you know, sort of the editorial thing is is so kind of important because it's about the author being lent the courage of their own convictions. I think you know, and just yeah. and and talking about what those are, and and saying no, this is you you must do this. You know. Yeah, I feel like with the poems, obviously some of them are yeah, extremely intimate. They're they're addressed to lovers. Well, they're they're very closely attached to moments. But it's an unusual book, isn't it? In that it doesn't follow the usual kind of you know sort of um, uh, you know sort of uh, uh, decline and fall, the end. You know, it's just like yeah. it, it's it, it strikes me as much more true to life because it's about the way one relationship moves into another. And 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 I was I was struck by the fact that you just don't read much on this subject. Mm. At all, you know, we 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 we, t- we tend to. Um, I hate sort of cheap metaphors, you know, the, like the life is a journey kind of things. So it mm. drives me crazy. It's just <laughs> life isn't a fucking journey, it just isn't. And it's also the lies that <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the, the lies that we tell each other about, sort of you know, yeah. sort of how you know, the, like the novelization of our own relationships, and it's just not true. And, and yours strikes me as a much more kind of honest look at what really happens to the heart, what, what, you know, sort of, and you can still mourn, but at the same time be feeling something else coming oh, man, alive. Yeah, it's a messy time. I think like the the idea of writing past the heartbreak and trying to get 
a clearer perspective because so much of the powerful love poetry or the powerful music created around heartbreak is that it's it's the heartbreak album or it's it's the kind of but I felt really really strongly that it had to move through that past that into a new love but yeah as you say reflecting the confusion it's never it's never as clear as that's over I'm completely healed I'll move on for me anyway it's never that clear and in this situation it wasn't so I thought that was a more useful yeah. thing to put out for people. Like, you know, I believe that it has to be useful at some... It has to feel useful. I think it's so know. much more useful than, you know, sort of telling folk the same old lies about closure. You know, yeah. whatever, you know? I mean, there's a losing <laughs> metaphor for you. I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 Um, you don't get closure, you know? But I feel, I feel like when, when I, I'm going to perform these tomorrow, I'm going to read them out, and um, usually when I approach the stage and approach a reading, it's like I feel... Like something, something beyond me is going to happen. Like something beyond the audience. Something's going to something's going to happen to us all, which is kind of bigger than any of us, but wouldn't happen without any of us. Mm. It's this. Um, it's very powerful for me. Performance. I feel like it takes me somewhere. In in its best moments, it takes me somewhere indescribable. But I feel completely sure that that's not what. That's definitely not going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm not going to be in performance. I'm just going to be reading the poems out and trying to stay true to the story that the poems tell. And I, and I hope that what happens is that somebody in the audience is going to recognise their own mess, you know? But, and I think that's, that's a much more humble hope than, than what I usually go into performance It's risky, with. isn't it? Because you don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I anticipate, too, that that'll be the case, actually. You know, but, but, but you don't know, and that's the risk. Yeah. The risk is they're going to go, no, that's just you. I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, just, no, it's just you, thanks, Tat. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah. also that people might come to a gig, like, you know, wanting, with an expectation of a performance, and then, and then what's going to happen is a kind of slow, quiet reading through... These poems about intimacy, but I think there's a different payoff for that because yeah. what then happens for people is is a connection to their wherever they're at with their own thing. I, I mean, I hope so. Anyway, I hope I hope I hope that people will will find a use for this stuff. Otherwise, what are we making poems for? You know? Kate Tempest's "Running Upon the Wires" is published by Picador. Don Patterson's "The Fall at Home" is with Faber, who also published "Milkman" by Anna Burns. Next week, we're joined by Kieran Millwood-Hargrave and Jesse Burton to discuss their forays into the forests of fairy tales. Turns out, the originals are often grim, but not for the reasons we thought. Until then, as ever, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books, or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But for now, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks and bye-bye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.